This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Are we having an election? No, seriously. Is this actually an election? This is something. I am not sure it's an election. This is a cascading meltdown. It's a Republican Party implosion, where the party and the candidates are trying to wall themselves off from contagion from the other. The question is, which is the leper colony and which is society trying to cast out the lepers, right? Has the city-state cast out its dissidents or have the rats fled the city that's under siege? Hard to say, but all great analogies for the Republicans. Trump says the election is going to be rigged. He's right. He has already stolen this election from all of us. This is not an election. I mean, the people will vote, but we're not using this as a battle of ideas or even a battle of ideology. It's a battle of ideas like a storm seller and a twister are engaged in a fruitful debate. One side is blowing hard, sucking up fauna in its wake. Well, fauna and flora, Billy Bush. The other side is just battening down the hatches. It's the only available strategy. And when the storm passes, the survivor, Hillary Clinton, she'll have a mandate which reads, I was not the hurricane. I'm not saying that Romney versus Obama was an example of Hegelian dialectic, right? I'm not proposing that Sarah Palin was thesis and Joe Biden was antithesis. Yeah, and I know, I haven't forgotten that George H.W. Bush engaged Michael Dukakis on important issues of flag production in the USA and tank comportment. And I also know that you get better ideas out of the primary than the general. But just take the last election. It wasn't perfect, but Romney had ideas. Makers versus takers. If you cottoned his ideas, you'd have voted for him. Obama had ideas. He said, I believe in talking to our enemies. If you hated that, you wouldn't vote for him. Both sides pressed a little or a lot on the scales of justice. They used the tools of rhetoric and the tricks of media to make their point seem great and their opponent's point seem terrible. That's all fair game. But ultimately, voters decided on a set of arguments. With this election, voters are being asked to assess the worldview of a wounded wild boar. I wonder what the wild boar thinks of cap and trade. I think that the wild boar prefers a gradual phase in on cost of living adjustments to social security. It is wildly entertaining, like any good nature documentary, and will get the better candidate elected. That is true. But she'll be the only candidate who didn't run for president as much as she ducked and covered at just the right time. On the show today, I spiel about where the Republican Party goes from here, and that's also the subject of our conversation. It's Rahan Salam of the National Review. What about that party of which you are an adherent, Mr. Salam? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Rahat Salam is executive editor and a National Review Policy Fellow. Policies are his policy. He's a top conservative thinker. He puts a lot of effort into where the Republican Party should go, where conservatives should go. And of course, what's been happening in America the last few months have been seriously confounding everyone let alone the editor of National Review. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm great. So when thinkers, uh, Republicans or thinkers on the right, assess what the impact of Trump will be, it mostly the emphasis is on the electoral impact. Perhaps he will imperil the Senate. Um, perhaps he will lose the presidency when a decent Republican candidate wouldn't have. Fine, let's put that aside. What about thought? Is there anything that his candidacy has stopped a way of thinking, or at least detoured what was a growing consensus among conservative thinkers so that you'll have to scramble to reassemble the pieces of a thought in addition to possibly doing the same thing with the electoral map. That's not quite the way I see it. I see it as, um, you know, you have all kinds of surprises. So you have the 9-11 terror attacks that scrambles things a bit. You know, let's say you have someone like Trump who seems to surface some things that the kind of people who run for office could ignore. So if I'm running for office, uh, you know, let's say I'm Scott Walker, I'm governor of Wisconsin. Someone like that, the people he's interacting with in a lot of cases are employers. They're maybe small business owners. They're the kind of people who show up at the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, who are members of the, uh, you know, the, the county committee of the local Republican Party. Those are the people he's interacting with day to day. But then when you have some kind of political revolt or you have some new political entrepreneur who comes on stage, then you're like, whoa, wait a second. Where are all these other Republicans coming from? Mm -hmm. These Republicans don't have the same attitudes as the guy on the county committee. They don't have the mm -hmm. same attitudes as the guy who runs a dairy farm who has this attitude about immigration because he needs guys to milk cows. You see what I mean? Yes. And then it's suddenly like, oh, wait, I'm seeing this different thing coming and hitting me. And so then you have two things. One, you have a group of intellectuals who try to engage in reverse engineering, be like, okay, though this is what's happening politically. Okay, I'm going to adapt and I'm going to respond. Then you've got other thinkers, other intellectuals who have always been saying one thing. And then it's like, oh, well, that's more relevant now. So I'm going to dust this off. So it's not as straightforward as, aha, all of the great minds have gotten together and we figured out what the agenda is going to be. It goes back and forth. Some people are reactive. Some people are proactive. This is a lot more of a scramble than people tend to think. Right. If we're talking about Trump giving rise, oh my gosh, there are all these sorts of Republican voters who have these opinions on anti-immigration that's not the same as the dairy farmer. There is, There was some thought, of maybe you think it's wishful thinking, that of course we knew these angry voters were out there. Of course we knew this sometimes vehement and ugly anti-immigration sentiment was out there. But if we just suppressed it or if we followed Reince Priebus's path to courting the Latino vote after a few years or a couple of elections, it would die out if it wasn't given the oxygen. Do you disagree with that? I think that people really think about the electorate in very crude and foolish ways. So people think of it as, ah, oh, we've got this bucket of black voters. We've got this bucket of Hispanic voters. We've got this bucket of white voters. When in fact, well, actually, when you look at Hispanics, when you look at Hispanics who are English language dominant versus those who are bilingual or Spanish language dominant, you see pretty big differences in their political proclivities. If you're looking at those who are recent immigrants versus those who are immigrants who have been in the country for, let's say, 20 years or more, there are some differences. Those who are native born, et cetera. Those who are evangelical 
evangelical Christians. You just see all of these little slices. So, you know, my view is that when you look at things through the lens of the ethno-racial pentagon, uh, you know, we've got these five color-coded blocks on the map, and that's what explains everything. You're actually really doing it wrong. Uh, And when you're looking at an issue like immigration, you know, my thing is that, yeah, there's a certain kind of rhetoric, uh, anti-immigration rhetoric, that appears to demonize uh, Mexican-Americans, for example, and members of other groups, uh, but Mexican-Americans in particular, that is just, yeah, I mean, that's pretty toxic. If instead you're talking about immigration to talk about employers and say that, hey, you know something? Employers who violate immigration laws tend to also violate minimum wage laws. They tend to also not abide by OSHA regulations. They tend to do a whole lot of things. Uh, And when you talk about immigration that way, then, you know, you actually could have policies that might be, you know, 70% of the policies might be pretty similar, depending on how, you know, if you're talking about it, the way that use hateful rhetoric versus the way that's really thinking about the labor market and protecting vulnerable workers, including, by the way, the, the immigrant workers were being exploited. The policy mix might be not entirely dissimilar, but it sure as hell sounds different. And when you're talking about some people who might be persuadable, you know, then you're getting a very, very big difference. So according to the RNC circa 2012, 2013, you know, it's all about, well, we've got to have the policies that, you know, this or that lobbying group is telling us we must have, or this or this or that clique of intellectuals who kind of all talk to one another and have decided they've come up with this brilliant consensus. But it, it it actually could be something really, really different where, you know, if Mitt Romney had said, hey, by the way, two thirds of all of the housing wealth accumulated by Hispanics was wiped out in the housing bust. I want to talk about that. Uh, then maybe that would have been something that would have changed perceptions of him, uh, you know, as much as talking about immigration in a different way. In fact, maybe more than talking about immigration in a different way. But people don't think that way because, frankly, it's inconvenient to think that way. You know, I think that what Reince Priebus is going to say, let's say this is a close election and mm-hmm. Donald Trump barely loses. What Reince Priebus is going to say, I'm going to guess, is that, well, uh, look at what an amazing job the RNC did uh, despite having this terrible candidate. That's why we should double down on exactly what we've been doing all along. I'm pretty sure that's what he's going to say, because that's the path of least resistance. It doesn't alienate the people who've been around you for a long time who want to believe that they were right all along. Uh, There are going to be other people, however, who are going to say, "Okay, this really proves the point that this is not working. This is seriously broken and we need a new model. Right. Well, I find that the reaction to 95 percent of all stimuli is, quote, Oh, that confirms exactly what I thought. Even if it was the opposite stimuli, you would say, oh, that confirms exactly what I thought. Because yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. I, I'm as susceptible to this as anyone else. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it's something to be aware of. Now, as far as Donald Trump scrambling the issues, there was a time when the argument could be made that Trump was liberating the GOP from its most deeply held beliefs. In fact, that time was August 4th when you wrote an article for Slate titled, Donald Trump is liberating the GOP from its mostly deeply from its most deeply held beliefs. But my my question is, I want to talk about, is he really doing that? He definitely took a lot of policy positions, such as just pro-gay marriage, and there hasn't even been a question about that and being anti-Iraq war. Uh, but is it a liberation? It seems like he's all over the place on so many issues and contradicts himself on so many things, not the gay marriage thing, but so many others. I was thinking, is it a liberation or is it like saying, you know, in, in the Victorian era, there were all these strictures on how to act, but a schizophrenic wouldn't have followed those strictures. Would that person have been a rebel or a schizophrenic? 
So basically, you know, one set of things is decorum and self-presentation and all this other stuff. And another set of things is, you know, yeah, to what extent do you follow a particular ideological script? Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I believe that he has unmoored, uh, he has basically opened things up on the ideological side. And I actually think it's related to the ways in which he is a performer, in which he is clownish, et cetera, for this reason. There have been other Republican candidates who have been a bit more populist, who have been a bit more heterodox on this or that ideological stance. But the thing is that they were not able to make it through the money primary. They were not able to actually build campaigns that could make it through primaries uh, and that could uh, you know, achieve uh, some penetration of the national consciousness. But the thing about Trump is that, you know, number one, he's a celebrity. He had this pre-existing uh, name recognition, etc. But then the fact that he was just so erratic um, and unusual and strange made him a much more newsworthy story. Uh, so the combination of those two things uh, had this kind of funny effect where it actually, number one, allowed him to break through. Uh, so that he could actually reach audiences directly. And then he was able to, you know, kind of not adhere to the ideological script. It gave him that freedom. So, you know, is that something that's sustainable? Uh, you know, is Trump going to create a Trump wing of the party? I doubt it. But what he's done is showed other candidates, huh, interesting. I don't necessarily have to adhere to this or that or that policy position uh, in order to be considered part of the Republican tent. Now, how that's going to play out is an open question, because it's not as though Donald Trump has seen to it that resources no longer matter. Uh, you're still going to need the donor base in order to make certain kinds of arguments, and that's still going to be constraining. The thing is that over the very long term, when we're talking about a two or three year time cycle, it's one thing. If you're talking about it over the course of 10 years, what happens is people don't even acknowledge the ways that they've changed. Because no one acknowledged it. Like there are people today, if you said to them, hey, remember back in 2005 when you opposed same-sex marriage? They'd be like, how? No, no, of course I didn't. I was never a bigot and a terrible person. But well, no, I mean, of course you did. Because people's minds change and they, you know, their perception of what is appropriate or whatever else changes, right? So, you know, it's very possible that 10 years from now, it might not even take 10 years, but you're going to get a Republican saying, how dare you accuse me of wanting to repeal Obamacare? You know, because basically, you know, by that time, perhaps Obamacare will be so entrenched and non-controversial. Uh, you know, I'm not making that, I'm not saying that as a prediction, but frankly, you know, we've seen that happen before in history. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just the way these things work. Let me ask you about another policy area where I thought there were interesting ideas bubbling up among conservatives, and they have been thwarted just because, you know, as the uh, presidential nominee goes, so goes the agenda. And it's uh, it's law enforcement, Donald Trump's emphasis on law and order. It seems like he's talking from a bygone era. I won't impart uh, any denigrations of his motivation, but it just seems like there was this interesting discussion that maybe was going to happen, and now there is not. Do you think he's uh, kind of hurt or set back whatever uh, ideas were happening in terms of policing? Well, I, uh, you know, again, I, my framework is a little bit different. I believe that the reason you had some folks on the right and some folks on the left appear to come together on criminal justice reform is because crime became a lower salience issue. And when yeah. an issue becomes lower salience, then it becomes less likely to be an issue where you're going to get meaningful partisan competition. So basically, you just have a bunch of wonks and bureaucrats and other people uh, who, by
by the way, tend to all be college educated. They often are middle class or upper middle class. They have similar sensibilities and they, you know, are concerned about offending the same people and what have you. So they basically will tend to agree and they'll talk about it differently. Like, let's say some libertarians will say uh, prison is, is really expensive, whereas folks on the left will say, you know, our prison system is racist. Uh, but then they'll wind up coming together. But when you have a big spike in violent crime, uh, you know, and that's roughly what happened when you're looking at America in the 1960s and 70s, then an issue becomes more salient. And then you start talking mm -hmm. about it in different ways. So, you know, my view is that um, I'm sympathetic to criminal justice reform, but I'm pretty sure that when I talk about criminal justice reform, I mean something very different than a lot of other folks who talk about it. Because for me, uh, the big problem is that you have a, uh, you know, if you look at African Americans, for example, the African Americans who are in the top third in terms of household income are far less likely to be victims of violent crime today than had been the case 30 years ago. If you look at African Americans living in the bottom third, they're actually far more likely today in an America where our level of violent crime is certainly lower than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. Now, of course, there's been a difference in the last year or so. But that's pretty interesting. The problem is a lot more concentrated in a small number of communities. So when I think about reforming criminal justice, I think, holy crap, we have a huge amount of violent crime still. It's way more concentrated, and it has a much more damaging influence on the lives, on the brains of children who live in some communities. So, you know, I certainly think that uh, the way we approach incarceration – there are some problems there. There are some things we got to do. But I also believe that, you know, you can talk about an over-incarceration problem, but I also believe that there's an under-enforcement problem. And I believe that when that whole conversation about criminal justice is happening among a bunch of middle class, upper middle class, college educated folks who want to be thought well of, you know, da da da, and they're kind of vibing out at some session funded by the Cokes or what have you. And hey, we're all agreeing. Isn't it amazing? We're high fiving each other. We have this beautiful ideological consensus. Uh, and I think there's a reason why some people are kind of outside of that consensus being like, oh, wait a second, slow down. Basically, it's all about the salience of the issue. When people don't worry about it and don't think about it, then you're going to get consensus. When people start worrying about it again, and again, there could be good or bad reasons they're worrying about it again, uh, you know, then you're not going to have consensus because the stakes are higher. Raihan Salam, executive editor of National Review. Thanks so much, Raihan. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let's start by noting that one presidential candidate called the other presidential candidate the devil in the last debate, and that barely got any attention. And the really crazy thing is, in terms of the newsmaking elements of that debate, not to give it too much attention is the right call. Look, we can't get into these allegations of Beelzebubism. There was too much else. So I take my cues from Ryan and noting the intense vitriol between Trump and Paul Ryan would like to talk about how the Republican Party might one day conduct an autopsy on this campaign. David Frum on CNN says this. The question is what how will explain what went wrong? Some people will say um, we had a perfectly healthy party before Donald Trump. Uh, he was a, a freak accident. And we need to get back to our core mission of cutting Medicare, cutting taxes and having more immigration. Um, I, my argument is that you need to learn from Donald Trump, that he identified important grievances and important parts of American society. Now, he offered noxious and self-destructive remedies, and he himself was an unfit person. But he saw something. And, what, and, and the task for Republicans is to see 
what he saw and then to address it in a healthy and useful way, not in the poisonous way he's addressed. Interesting. First of all, I mostly agree with Frum's first point that people will whistle past the Trump phenomenon. This will absolutely happen. It's how politicians, how human beings protect themselves against phenomenon they don't want to process. So Trump will be written off as one of these hundred-year floods that now seem to happen every four years, and this rambling, unshackled blowhard will be painted as sui generis. But from second point, that what Republicans should do is identify the grievances that Trump put his finger on, but come up with more palatable solutions, that's not real soul-searching either. That's regarding Trump like he's a useful truffle-finding pig. And sure, left to his own devices, the pig will eat the truffles. He'll probably start humping the handler's leg. But what a service he provided. The Donald is divining rod. I think it's self-serving in the guide of a hard truth. All from is urging us or his party to do is selectively process the frothing anti-intellectualism that pushed Trump to prominence. There is no separating Trump's horrid solutions from Trump's supposed understanding of the audience. Who doesn't know that a big part of America is disaffected? Of course they are. Trump won the nomination, not because he understood this better, but precisely because his loathsome solutions had so much appeal. A wall, a Muslim ban, a 45% tariff. No one of David Frum's moderate ilk supports those policy proposals. But if you don't support those things and the attendant bombast, you lose to Trump. Perhaps the Republicans should ask why it was their party and not the Democrats who were susceptible to such a cult of personality. Democrats were disaffected. Democrats were angry. But their champion, their avatar for anger, was Bernie Sanders, who's been a member of the House or Senate for the last quarter decade. And while Bernie would occasionally have a wishful, let's say, policy pronouncement, like predicting 5% GDP growth if his policies were put in place, that was far from the normal thing that happened. He'd usually adhere to reality. Trump operated in a realm and operates in a realm unaffected by reality. Democrats, I'm not talking about the loony left of Burning Man, but actual people on stage seeking the Democratic nomination were much more fact-based. And it wasn't just Trump. It was a bunch of the Republicans, Carson, Fiorina, Cruz. They operated in a realm where angry assertions were just as good as truths. Why is that? I think it's because there's a hard infrastructure within Republican circles, mainstream Republican circles, that embraces conspiracy theories, lies, and propaganda. The Breitbart's and Fox News of the world might say, oh, Democrats do the same thing. It's called the mainstream media. I don't think so. I don't think the mainstream media is the left-leaning mirror of the right-wing media. The right-wing media is much more embedded in the DNA of the Republican Party. There is a left-wing media, alt-weeklies and... Think Progress and the Utney Reader, but a Democrat doesn't have to kowtow to them and get in their good graces like a Republican does with Rush Limbaugh or RedState.com. Also, what is it about the Republican Party that so easily nominates a candidate with no possible crossover appeal? Donald Trump has not shown any ability to communicate with people except his own cheering hordes, who already A, know what he's talking about, or B, don't care, just so long as he's being splenetic. Take this from the debate. Well, she said she was awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. And she also sent a tweet out at 3 o'clock in the morning, but I won't even mention that. But she said she'll be awake. Who's the famous thing? We're going to answer our call at 3 o'clock in the morning. Guess what happened? Ambassador Stevens, Ambassador Stevens sent 600 requests for help. And the only one she talked to was Sidney Blumenthal, who's her friend and not a good guy, by the way. So 
you know, she shouldn't be talking about that. If you were attuned to GOP dog whistles, you might be able to parse that. Or you might be able to do enough work with what you think you heard and turn those intentions into something meaningful to you. But there is no chance that a person who's not a political junkie, who doesn't follow the news a lot and probably is his mind made up, or isn't already a Trump Breitbart devotee, no chance that such a person will be able to do anything with that sentiment. It's word coleslaw from a candidate who can't communicate to any voters who aren't in his camp already. Maybe this unwillingness to imagine how people unlike you might react to a candidate has something to do with, yeah, I'll say it, privilege. Maybe the Democrats, as a party of minorities and more women than men, just naturally, instinctively, adaptively have to understand how the majority might react to the candidate they put forward. I don't know, maybe. Here's another example, though, of Trump as inept candidate. First of all, she was there as Secretary of State with the so-called line in the sand, which... No, I wasn't. I was gone. I hate to interrupt okay. you, but but you at were in some contact. Point, excuse me. At some you point, were, we need you to were do in some total contact here. with the White House, and perhaps, sadly, Obama probably still listened to you. I don't think he'd be listening to you very much anymore. Obama draws the line in the sand. It was laughed at all over the world. What happened? Now, with that being said, she talks tough against Russia. Okay. The line in the sand is commonly called the red line. If you want to make yourself understood to the electorate, you should probably use the terms that everyone use. The red line was about using chemical weapons. You can't use chemical weapons. But this is great. Hillary said, nope, that happened after me. But she was wrong. She was Secretary of State when the red line was first proposed. Not when the showdown occurred because Assad crossed the red line, but she was there for red line. Red line happened on her watch. And Trump didn't know it. He took her word for it. He turned it into a, yeah, but still, when it should have been a, no, you didn't. This candidate has no command of facts. He's got gut and judgment. But why are Republicans so much more drawn to candidates who don't know things as much as they feel things? I thought liberals were supposed to be squishy and emotion-driven. I guess not when the emotion is rage. But these qualities, incuriosity, inability to reach beyond the most rabid-based, anti-intellectualism, inconsistency, conspiracy thinking, magical thinking, and yes, loathsome policy solutions do seem to take root in Republican primaries more than they do in Democratic primaries. The solution is not, as Frum says, to find more candidates who understand grievance. The solution might be to start being the party that offers something other than the stoking of grievance. Trump might be a hundred-year storm, but the Republican Party has levees that are far too easily breached. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson was not producer of The Gist when The Thin Blue Line came out. Fact check, Chris Berube was not producer of The Gist when the achy breaky took the line dancing community by storm. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has been for a little while, but not when a chorus line blazed brightly across the Great White Way. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is a romantic, but not so old as to have fallen for the line about you being an Australian marsupial because you meet his qualifications. The gist, we have fallen for koala-based pickup lines. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.